The Enlightenment was probably the most important age of scientific and philosophical development in the last 500 years or so. And if we roughly date the Enlightenment from, say, 1600 to 1800, it's worth inquiring in the, into the uneasy connection between science and philosophy on the one hand and religion and theology on the other. Because the Enlightenment was so dynamic and so fruitful in its scientific and intellectual endeavors, for, in one of the f few cases in Western history, theology became a lesser subject. It was not as significant for Enlightenment thinkers on the whole as it was for thinkers during the Reformation or during the Middle Ages. And the connection and the tension between science and religion is very clearly highlighted in the difficulties that emerge in deism. Now, deism is the attempt by thinkers of the Enlightenment to reconcile what they can of Christian revelation with the new understanding of the physical universe that comes with the Copernican revolution. And in particular, they are trying to winnow out the false and fraudulent and merely poetic elements from religion from some sort of logical core that is accessible to all human beings independent of their of their scriptural heritage. In other words, they're looking for something like natural religion, the religion that, that appeals strictly to the human mind, and religion which can be justified on the basis of natural reason. So the Enlightenment, in a way, wants to have its cake and eat it too. It wants an intellectual sort of religion which holds on to at least some of the political and moral traditions of Christianity, but at the same time has an intellectually respectable status among the scientific and uh, and political thinkers of the Enlightenment. Now, the difficulty here is that deism suffers from a sort of tension between the realm of faith and the realm of reason. And although many of the thinkers of the Enlightenment optimistically had hoped that they could reconcile faith and reason, certain tensions and conflicts emerged throughout the course of the Enlightenment and in the last 50 or 100 years of the Enlightenment, from roughly 1700 to 1800, thinkers began to divide into opposing camps in the way they handled religion. And what happened is that this optimistic attempt to reconcile Christianity and science was ground between the upper and lower millstones of religious dogmatism on one side, the heirs of the Reformation, and religious skepticism on the other side, the heirs of modern natural science. So I think it's worth investigating two thinkers who helped us crush the project of Enlightenment deism because they, the kind of observations they make and the kinds of problems that they generate are the characteristic problems, not just then, but characteristic problems now for trying to reconcile our knowledge of the scientific physical world and our, our understanding of theological problems. Now, in, this, in the case of the Enlightenment and in the case of England, Two figures immediately suggest themselves. England is a very felicitous land in this respect. It has two people that are near contemporaries. They're both 18th century thinkers. And they are remarkable for the strenuous way in which they make their stands about deism. And they pull deism apart. They create such a persuasive critique of deism on, on e from different perspectives that ultimately deism cannot weather the storm. It cannot survive into the next century. It leaves people ready to make the next big jump into romanticism. The two writers I'm thinking about are Jonathan Swift and David Hume. And it would be hard to think of two men who had more different temperaments. Hume in the first case, um, was perhaps the greatest of the Enlightenment skeptics. 
He was an empiricist, and he, if I would be inclined to describe as the greatest philosophical joker of the Enlightenment. Hume was a big, fat, jolly old Scotsman that spent his entire intellectual career playing practical jokes on the tradition of Western philosophy. By being an empiricist, for example, he managed to generate what certainly appears to be a very powerful skeptical argument against causality which is very peculiar, because once causality goes, the glue which cements our universe together goes. Hume was skeptical about metaphysics, and he thought causality was a kind of metaphysics. He was also skeptical about religion, and this is very crucial for our understanding of him. He wrote a number of caustic critiques of religion, particularly critiques of Enlightenment deism, which, will, which helped nail the coffin shut for this particular intellectual movement. On the other hand, in the other corner, opposed to David Hume, our frivolous and jolly Scotsman, we have a caustic and harsh canon. He's a, uh, he's a, a member of the Anglican Church and he's a cl clergyman. And this is Jonathan Swift. Jonathan Swift wrote the, mo the most caustic satire since Roman times, and it is remarkable that a man who is committed to ch Christian charity and mercy and kind-heartedness writes some of the most biting, juvenilian, caustic satires in the Western tradition. He once said that the reason why I write satires is because I cannot destroy all those that deserve it. In fact, he was loaded with rage. Strangely enough, we have our religious skeptic. Turns out to be a man of great contemplative disposition, but also quite a quiet and funny fellow. On the other hand, our Christian believer who believes in the possibility of salvation and holds on tradi traditional moral ideas and religious ideas turns out to be a man outside of time, enraged at the society that would generate anything as secular as the Enlightenment. Now, Jonathan Swift's most remarkable argument about religion is not to be found in his major works, things like Gulliver, Gulliver's Travels. There are references to religion there and to our lack of piety and to the fact that human beings do not measure up well compared to a world of horses. If you know the end of, of uh, Gulliver's Travels with the Winhams, right, he goes to a land of horses and the horses are much more moral than the people, right, which tells you a great deal about how Swift not feels about horses but rather feels about the people around him. He is a censorious, judgmental figure. Um, those of you that know the Old Testament, when you read Jonathan Swift, would be well served by going back to read the book of Jeremiah, because Swift is constantly engaging in Jeremiah's, telling these wicked people that God will wreak his vengeance upon them. And it's entirely possible that Swift was part of God's vengeance upon them, because he constantly lashed them with their own impiety, and his criticisms were so acute and so jagged that almost no Nobody can read this, even those who are not committed to religion and not slightly recoil from the ferocity of them. Well, his best argument against deism or about deism was called, I mean, it's written between 1708 and 1711 because it goes through a couple of editions, but it's a short piece. It's called An Argument Against the Abolition of Christianity. Now stop and think about the heavy irony we see here for a cleric to be telling us at the beginning of the 18th century that he thinks that the abolition of Christianity may be attended by certain inconveniences. Not, not that it's going to destroy your soul, not that it, it bars the way to salvation, but rather it may turn out to be inconvenient in this world. And for that reason, if we were wise, enlightenment men, we might want to keep Christianity around because it's so practically useful, you know, for odds and ends, things like that. The implication here, of course, is that 
the Enlightenment deism, the whole project of reconciling science and free rationality with religious faith, is something like diet Christianity. It's Christianity with the calories taken out, with any of the, the things that make Christianity Christianity right, left in it. All we have is the shell, the husk, the, the set of myths, which could have been any set of myths from the perspective of the Enlightenment. In other words, Swift is arguing that the Enlightenment gelds Christianity, that it destroys it because it pulls away the element of real religious faith, leaving only the kind of, of Christianity that would be useful to politicians and ambitious intellectuals. So his argument against the abolition of Christianity is in fact an argument against taking deism seriously. He says, or he implies, he never says it directly because he never comes out of character, but he says that after examining it, although I am an, an advanced thinker as well, and I, I certainly don't believe in Christianity, but having, it, having examined it, it seems to me that we have been over-optimistic in our estimation of how abolishing Christianity might work. And it gives some very fine arguments about what, what kind of inconveniences might attend eliminating Christianity from 18th century England. Now he says, first of all, that it is very useful for maintaining hierarchies. And not only is it useful for maintaining hierarchies, but it's great for those that have ambitions and pride and want to move up in the world. In other words, he's saying it's a great vehicle for the city of man. It's a great vehicle by which you could engage in the inverse of the Christian movement towards the other world if you can make yourself more a part of the city of man rather than the city of God. What, uh, what Swift is arguing here is that by moving from true um, Christianity based upon the religious faith of Augustine or Luther to this newfangled idealism, uh, uh, this newfangled optimism which connects science and religion, what you are going to get is the worst of both. He says that it will raise people, but it's not clear from this book that we want to raise these people. And he also says, had it occurred to you that many of the benighted people that still believe in Christian myths might start behaving in a, an unseemly way if you eliminate Christianity? Perhaps just to keep public order, we would keep it around. And of course, the implication here is that those that want to keep public order under those circumstances are the worst kind of tyrants because they are simultaneously hypocrites as well as being self-serving. They do not believe Enlightenment deism any more than Swift believes in it, but for Machiavellian political purposes, they will go through the motions. Didn't Jesus warn us about hypocrites Pharisees, whitened sepulchers, and things like that? Well, implicitly, Swift is gesturing at all of those pharisaical attitudes, and he says, deism was invented by Pharisees for Pharisees. It is maybe attended with more inconveniences than you had imagined. He says, if we keep going this way, and we do actually eliminate Christianity, the stock of the East India Company may fall as much as 1%. Give that some thought. And of course, every Enlightenment deists are quaking in their boots, no doubt, thinking, oh my, the East India Company stock will fall by 1%. But in fact, those that would try and maintain religion because it props up the stock market are exactly the worst kind of people to be running a society, and God forbid, the worst kind of people to, re to be renewing our theology. We have let the camel into the tent. We have let the, the, the hawk into the chicken coop. The worst people that we could possibly put in charge of a government and a religion are the ones who only go through the motions of Christianity, in some ways better having outright atheists, people who are really willing to say, let's abolish Christianity directly. And that's what Swift is trying to drive them towards. He says, look, don't give me Christianity in water. Don't give me adulterated Christianity that is more or less consistent with your 
immediate uh, political and scientific inclinations. No, give me that old-time religion that demands a leap of faith, that demands something more than mere science and mere rationality. This is at least as good an argument against the Enlightenment and against science as uh, in uh, Gulliver's Travels, where he, uh, Swift talks about the Academy of Projectors at Legato. Those are the ones who are trying to get sunbeams out of cucumbers and things like that. Swift hates the Enlightenment and hates science. He is a true creature of the Reformation because faith and by faith alone, that is how you will be saved in Swift's, uh, in Swift's conception. And by eliminating faith, you have taken the marrow out of Christianity and just left, it, left us with a hollow husk. So the first big salvo, the first big attempt, or the first big weight that is piled upon deism in England is Jonathan Swift, and it is a weight they will not soon uh, uh, get out from under. Now, strangely enough, Swift, Swift was remarkably prescient. If you uh, he said uh, when discussing religion that one of the utilities of it is that quote, enthusiastic mastiffs may amuse themselves with a, quote, sheepskin stuffed with hay. In other words, religion is now just a scarecrow, but we still have dangerous dogs among our people, and it'd be much better to give them something to tear apart and play with, so long as it's not real. Now stop and think, a generation later, when Gibbon is writing his History of Rome, and it's an explicitly anti-Christian history, in which he blames the fall of Rome on the rise of Christianity. Well, Gibbon says, and this is part and parcel of the Enlightenment, Swift really knew what he was talking about. He said, from the perspective of a philosopher, all religions are false. From the perspective of a common man, all religions are true. From the perspective of politicians, all religions are useful. Yes, indeed, that kind of caustic, dangerous, uh, nasty skepticism that we see in Gibbon is, in fact, prefigured in Swift. Swift can see the trajectory of the Enlightenment, and while he is, in my estimation, a backward-looking thinker, he is, first of all, a great stylist. I mean, he is as caustic as anyone that has ever written in English. And second of all, he is exceedingly intelligent. While we may or may not be willing to accept his stance towards the world, he does understand the implications of Enlightenment philosophy, and he is trying to save us from ourselves. So although in some respects he may seem to be an intellectual Luddite, somebody that is destroying the machinery of rationality because he's afraid of the consequences. On the other hand, he does accurately see what those consequences are. So if his alternative may or may not be acceptable to us, his diagnosis of the problem of the Enlightenment does not fall far short of the money. He is a remarkably accurate critic, better at what he doesn't like, better at being negative than being positive, better at telling you what he is opposed to than what he is in favor of. Now, let's move ahead a generation in English political thought, because thank God for, all of, for the history of Western literature, there's only one Jonathan Swift. Elsewise, we'd be faced with these crushing satires all the time, and the, the, uh, the taste of literature would become so much more bitter. A generation later, when we come to David Hume, we have a completely different kind of thinker, and he's going to take up the challenge presented by deism, and the challenge presented by the old-time uh, friends of revealed religion, of the tradition of Augustinian piety, which says, by faith alone shall you be saved. Hume is going to pick that up, and he is going to handle it in a most delicate and deft way. What Hume does is 
laughingly send up the Enlightenment and use irony and joke and mockery to treat a, a, previously, a topic that is previously taken with great seriousness in a flippant way. Hume's great achievement in the history of philosophy is to be able to write books which come very close to being philosophical, practical jokes, and yet at the same time have a serious intent and a serious method and a serious set of logical concerns underlaying these apparently joking or jesting texts. So Hume is, a, is an author which unlike Hume has a certain, or which Hume is an author which unlike Swift has a certain degree of subtlety. Swift is not remarkable for the subtlety of his sarcasm and irony. It's crushing. Hume on the other hand is very deft. You would, if you don't read it carefully you will sometimes get exactly the wrong inference from what he is saying. Now there are two texts in which Hume lays out his conception of religion, his skeptical, reductive, empirical conception of religion. And if you just stop before we go into the text and think about what an empirical, an empirical philosopher, someone who believes that you find out about the world by your sense perceptions, that things that are, that are spatio-templar are real, imagine what his religion is going to look like. It's not going to be very far from tables and chairs and celestial, mystical experiences other realms outside of space and time are going to be the object of his scorn and are going to be the object of his reductive scientific inquiry. Now there are two books which are particularly relevant here. The first is published, or the, the first and most important, or actually it comes last in his lifetime because it's after his death, but the most important of his works on religion is called uh, Dialogues on Natural Religion. And there's a reason why Hume published this book posthumously. He would have got him, in, I mean he always was getting in trouble with the ecclesiastical authorities because of his religious posture. He could never get a job, he was blackballed from university work, but had he published this, although England no longer burned people for heresy, he would have been perilously close towards moving towards that because it's so obviously, and not, not even atheistic test, because atheism would be too dogmatic for Hume. Rather than dogmatically insist that he's seen an absence of God, he'd say, well, maybe there's a God, maybe not, but I never get visited by angels, and I never see burning bushes, and I never get the miraculous experiences that other people tell me they do. Far be it for me to suggest that there is no such thing, but it's very hard to make it square with our understanding of the physical world. If you read between the lines, he is obviously trying to undermine religion, and he's obviously trying to do so in a deft way. I honestly think that he is trying to prevent his books from having harm to the vast majority of society that might actually get some utility out of these myths. But he clearly has in mind an audience of people who will understand that he is not to be taken literally. There's a, there's a line in Shakespeare where he says, Methinks the lady doth protest too much. Or when I read Hume's dialogues on natural religion, I can't help but think the gentleman doth protest too much. He spends page after page insisting on a distinction between philosophical or true religion, which one assumes is deism, one assumes is the rational religion of the Enlightenment, and mere superstitious idolatry. But the ironic insincerity of this distinction is palpable. How will you know what rational religion is if your conception of knowledge is based upon empiricism? If you are going to take that conception of knowledge seriously, rational religion is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. The fact that that should be apparent to those of us that know Hume's philosophy and know Hume's stance is carefully buried under a veneer of irony here. What he tries to do, for those that are not willing to pick up on this distinction, is sand Christianity down, 
to remove the plausibility of most of the major myths. And while something like an attenuated natural religion will be left over, will be the residue of this, this will in fact fall to Swift's criticism. In fact, this is the husk of religion. Now, it's also remarkable that he engages in certain logical problems which had been the concern, strangely enough, of medieval theologians. And we wouldn't expect an Enlightenment thinker, particularly in a thinker who is part of the tradition of English empiricism, to find much utility or interest in the problems that have been dealt with by certain scholastic and non-scholastic philosophers. But in fact, Hume, since he is treading somewhat the same ground, cannot at least ask some of the same questions if his his answers are different. Now, in the dialogues, we see two arguers mainly. There are actually a couple, but the two main figures of Philo and Cleanthes. And Swift goes through all the motions that, or Hume goes through all the motions that Swift had said any Enlightenment thinker would have to. Um, for example, there's a point at which uh, Cleanthes says, religion is practically useful in shoring up morals. That could be taken straight out of Swift, but Hume doesn't mean it in any ironic way. He says, well, look, if religion is good for anything. It's not good because it's so logical, because it makes such coherent sense. Rather, it's good because of what it practically gives you. If you stop and think about what an empirical philosopher has to believe about moral philosophy, he judges an action or a thing or an institution on the basis of its results or consequences. He is pragmatic in his judgments, exactly the opposite of Swift. And because he is pragmatic, he makes with a straight face arguments that are identical with the arguments made with Swift, but Swift made them ironically, meaning them to be taken ironically. What a difference perspective makes. They can make the same argument and it can mean two identically different things. Now. Beyond going to, giving us these skeptical, critical arguments about religion, Philo and Cleanthes have a sort of Socratic dialogue about the nature of natural religion, and we find out a couple of things. First of all, it would seem that we can't prove God's existence or find out about God a priori. For those of you that do not have a background in philosophy, what we mean here is a distinction between two kinds of knowledge. We might call deductive knowledge and inductive knowledge. Deductive knowledge is the kind of knowledge we get when we do math or logic tells us things like 2 plus 2 is 4, or a squared plus b squared equals c squared, if you know right triangles. Well, that kind of knowledge is all derivations from axioms. You start an axiomatic system, and from that you can generate all the sentences of arithmetic. You start an axiomatic system, you can generate all of Euclidean geometry. Well, Hume says that's one of the true kinds of knowledge, but it doesn't seem to apply to theology. We don't prove God's existence or find out about God's properties by deriving him from axioms. He is surely not contingent upon our axiomatic systems, and that seems like a plausible argument. Um, I can't imagine anything more mechanistic or implausible than to say, QED, God exists. Here are my axioms, here's the proof. That, as a style of thinking, that went out a thousand years ago. Hume has given that up. The other kind of knowledge that Hume takes seriously will be applicable to theology and will be applicable to the domain of religion. And that's a posteriori reasoning. A posteriori means that it's inductive, that we look at the world and make generalizations about it. For example, um, we know facts about the world of space and time by observing it and making it generalizations about our observations. Water runs downhill. That's a fact about the world. The way you find out that fact and all other facts about the world is by looking at the world. We get some water in an inclined plane and we pour it and down it goes, and down it goes, and down it goes, and we do it several times, we watch what happens, and then we make a generalization. This is the kind of thinking about thinking that is characteristic of empiricism, and also this empirical stance towards knowledge is the foundational stance of modern natural science. 
Empiricism is a kind of organized, methodical skepticism. You cannot make an assertion about the world unless you have some evidence. If I make the claim to you that water runs downhill, then I'm only justified in doing that when you ask me if I say, well, look, let's have some water in an inclined plane and I'll do the experiment for you. Now, the question is, what, if anything, can the activity of looking at the world tell us about God? Well, we have some difficulties here, and here's where the scholastic tradition is going to kick in. In the first case, the, when we look at the world and we wonder where it came from and how it got to be the way it is, this leads to one of the favorite arguments of the deist, the argument from design. We look at the world as a giant clockwork, and we say, no clock exists without a clockmaker, and the universe around us, now that it has been disclosed by Newtonian mechanics, is orderly like a clockwork and perfectly mathematical like a clockwork. There must be some great mathematician behind it who has ordered all things from the word go, and they still need, in other words, the idea of a prime mover, which is held over from scholasticism, it's one of the proofs of God's existence. That idea is held over, but Hume says he wants to take it from an empirical standpoint and look at the world and say, what generalizations can we make about God based upon the world as we see it? And he says, yes, there is a generalization we can make. It turns out that God is roughly analogous to the kind of thing that would make the world that we have. That's pretty much all you can find out about God. In other words, it's an empty tautology. All you're going to find out is that if there is a God who made the world, then it will be roughly analogous to an orderly mind, but it will be analogous in a way that is not clear, since there's only one example of God. What are we talking about exactly? And second of all, he will be the kind of God that will create the kind of world that we see which is just a way of saying what you see is what you get. Maybe there's something behind it throwing out the first ball, like the president starting you know, the, the, the baseball season, but that's all we're ever gonna see about him. And one of the difficulties that impedes empirical religion is the fact that we have no experience with the creation of worlds. Uh, remember when God says to Job, uh, where wert thou when I created the world? Speak if thou hast understanding. Well, it turns out that none of us are old enough to have been around at the beginning of the world. And for that reason, we don't know what it was like. And we also don't know what it is that God was actually doing in creating the world. In other words, it's a large, empty tautology. And while there may be some God that generated the beginning of the world, he is almost utterly inscrutable. What is he? Well, it seems to be a mind or a designer behind the universe. Is he like our mind? Well, maybe, maybe not. We're not quite sure. What can we say about God? It turns out either nothing or very nearly nothing. And here, oddly enough, is where he is starting to generate um, new ideas about themes that had actually been developed in scholasticism. Think about Meister Eckhart, for example, who is about as far removed from Hume as any human being could possibly be. But Meister Eckhart makes the very fine point when he says that God has no name. What he says, what he's implying is this. God is a unique kind of a thing. There's nothing like him. And he's not remotely like anything else that you've ever experienced. That entails the idea that no predicates apply to God. Think about it. We say that this, that this podium is made of wood. It entails the idea that this podium is not made of steel and it's not made of glass. If I were to say that this studio is warm, it implies that this studio is not frigidly cold. In other words, every predicate is a limitation. I cannot attribute any property to a thing without also attributing its non-having of the opposite and antagonistic property. Now here we come to God, and the difficulty is, is that our language breaks down. None of our predicates apply to him. 
we try and talk about God, but we only do so in a poetic and conventional way. Oddly enough, Hume has pushed logic so far that although he would not himself be willing to drop into this position, he has come to a sort of agreement with Meister Eckhart that God has no name. Hume takes it in one direction. God has no name due to the fact that God isn't real or we can't really know anything about him. What Meister Eckhart says is that logic isn't everything and naming isn't everything. What Hume has done is thought himself back to philosophical bedrock. He has done the opposite of the pious twist that, uh, that Meister Eckhart gives to the problem of talking about God. He says, because I'm going to adopt a strictly ironic and strictly empirical stance, the best we can know about God is that these roughly speaking like or analogous to the kind of mind that would create a world exactly like the one that we have. That is the most utterly unilluminating theological sentence you can possibly imagine. Better like Meister Eckhart to have said nothing at all. Hume, of course, expects us to draw that inference. And what he is trying to say is that theological discourse is bankrupt. It is a science without a subject matter. It's a devastating and crushing sort of critique. Now, Hume may have been inclined not to publish this during his lifetime because he got himself into so much trouble about religious matters, and it's quite clear how he is going to bring the wrath of an established church down on him if he were to publish a thing like that. And in fact, he was good at doing that every once in a while. In 1748, he published a short essay on miracles, and oh my, it is most unpleasant, and it, not only is it most unpleasant, it's probably right, and it's become what I would call one of the stock ideas in contemporary life. In other words, it is hard to get most people most of the time in the world around us now to believe that a miracle happened yesterday or happened recently. In other words, we are quite skeptical about miracles. We may believe in things like loaves and the fishes and bread into wine and th uh, bread, uh, uh, water into wine, things like that, but miracles nowadays are hard to get people to believe in. Hume contributes to the Enlightenment a devastating criticism of miracles, and by implication he contributes a devastating criticism of the Bible. Because if the Bible is shorn of its miracles, then it sounds more and more like one of those useful myths that Swift had been talking about. Now his argument against miracles revolves around the idea of actual and possible evidence. He says, first off, that the laws of nature are an accumulation of the regularities of our experience. In other words, every day if we get up just before sunrise, we will watch nighttime turn into daytime and we will see the sunrise. It, it happens on a regular basis every morning. Now, the reason we believe that the sun rises is that we have seen it, and the reason that most of us hold that the sun will rise is that we have seen certain regularities in our experience, and this is as much certainty as we ever get about the world of space and time. Well, now let's think in that context of what a miracle is. A miracle is understood to be a violation of the laws of nature, and that means that a miracle is a violation of our accumulated experience with the world. So, at least from the perspective of an empiricist, a miracle starts out with the burden of proof working against it. In other words, ceteris paribus, all other things being equal, a miracle is not rationally a plausible utterance, or to, to believe someone's account of a miracle is not a rationally plausible idea due to the fact that we have the greatest possible reason to believe in the regularities of our experience. So if somebody tells you that there's a 
that there's a, a country which is an island floating in the air, right? you are supposed to take that as fiction. You are supposed to say, well, I have never seen, I've seen islands before, but none of them were floating in the air. I think that most unlikely. Now, the problem here is that this sort of probabilistic reasoning does not give us certainty. The search for certainty is largely a theological project. Hume just wants a comfortable kind of way of moseying through the world, and empiricism will give you that. And he says, if I am to take miracles seriously and I am to be continuous and I am to be rational at the same time, I am only allowed to accept the miracle, and he does not rule out the possibility, but he says I am only allowed to accept a miracle if, by not believing in the authorities which give me this miracle, I would be positing an even greater miracle. In other words, if someone comes to me who has been, say, delirious or drunk or asleep and perhaps dreaming and says, I saw a water run uphill, or I saw an island floating in the sky, you might have good reason to say, no, you didn't. You were delirious, or you were drunk, or you were dreaming that. And the reason why you would have good grounds for skepticism there is because the tear in your network of belief would be far greater if you believe that water flows uphill or that uh, islands float in the air than the tear that is involved in your belief in saying, I think that this person is making a mistake. In other words, what Hume is doing is trying to keep the network of our beliefs integral, and he's, and he's essentially adopting the assumption that the right answer in dubious questions will be the one that creates the smallest tear in the networks of our beliefs. I think this may well be a move in the direction of a coherence theory of truth. So he's trying to avoid a big split in our theory, of, in our understanding of the world. And then he pulls out his ace in the hole. He says, particularly you devout Christians, and perhaps he was thinking of, of Swift or of people like Swift. And he says, you devout Christians, when you hear of reports, say, of miracles in the Hindu religion or the Buddhist religion or of any of the religions of any other part of the world, do you believe in those miracles as well? And if not, why not? And now the Christian is faced with a dilemma, they're between a rock and a hard place. If the evidence and the accounts given of miracles within the tradition of, Christian, of Christianity are plausible and valid, do you have any less evidence to believe that the miracles of the Buddha or the miracles within the Hindu tradition are not valid? And if, indeed, you want to say that you don't believe in Hindu miracles, but you do believe in Christian miracles, is this anything other than the most obvious and implausible kind of special pleading? Hume then says, if we have grounds for being skeptical about miracles across the board, well, or at least in other religions, then necessarily we have grounds for being skeptical about miracles across the board. And that means this is the end of the line for Christian miracles, and that means it's the end of the line for the tradition of Christian revelation. On the other hand, Hume says, let's face it, if you, don't believe in Hindu, if you do believe in Hindu miracles and all the miracles of Christianity, the problem that emerges there is that you're essentially playing tennis with the net down. That means that every account of miracles are plausible to you. So when your six-year-old comes in and, and says, Mommy, there's a monster in the closet, you have to take that proposition seriously and go see if there is a monster there. There are too many accounts which are miraculous, which are violations of our understanding of the world, for us to actually live like that. So Hume is calling the bluff of those who would believe in miracles and say, look, take them all or don't take any of them. If you want to just take the ones that happen to reinforce your religion, isn't that intellectually dishonest? Aren't you dealing to yourself from the bottom of the deck there? And if that's the case, doesn't that mean that either you got a real lucky break and you happen to be born into the only religion that has the real miracles, or that in fact miracles is a crumbling doctrine and that the process of enlightened science has given us a set of intellectual tools, the ideas that form uh, empirical, skeptical 
scientific philosophy. And these tools have now turned on the Christian tradition and are in the process of eliminating it. Now, it, it will come as no surprise to you that Hume got himself in an enormous amount of trouble for publishing a thing like this. And this is generally thought of as being one of the seminal texts of the Enlightenment because it undermines such an important element in the history of Christianity. If Jesus did not really raise Lazarus from the dead, it is also equally possible, nay, it may well be completely logically necessary that Jesus himself was not resurrected from the dead. And if you don't get the resurrection, you don't get Christianity. That is why Hume's protestations about real and, uh, and philosophical religion as opposed to mere superstitions rings hollow. Hume is pounding nails into the coffin of what he thinks anyway, that he's pounding nails into the coffin of Christianity. In fact, he is not. He is successfully undermining the Enlightenment optimistic attempt to unify science and religion, to have their cake and eat it too. What he is in fact doing, at the very minimum, is showing that we can't have it both ways. We can't have a literal belief in miracles and be consistent in our adherence to the methods that have allowed for the rise of modern natural science. We will have to make a choice one way or another. It would seem then that if we take uh, Hume to its, to its furthest extent, he is leading us on the road towards unbelief and skepticism. Think about the fact that, I mean, e even though he allows for the possibility of miracles, and here's the one case which you would allow for it. Suppose he, uh, he left London for a day, and when he came back, everyone in London said that the city of London had floated off the, uh, a thousand feet off the ground while he was absent. Well, if only one person told him that, he would find it easy to dismiss that. But suppose every inhabitant of London were to tell him that. Hmm, that is a difficult epistemological problem. He says, I suppose that it would be more miraculous and more bizarre, more outside of the domain of my experience if everyone in London should, should simultaneously have the same hallucination. That is a little bit less plausible than the idea that London was floating a thousand feet off the ground. So under those circumstances, and only under those circumstances, could you possibly believe in a miracle? The only problem that emerges is that, First of all, Christianity will not pass muster. It cannot meet that standard. But even more important, suppose London really did, as a matter of empirical fact, suppose when the next time Hume came back, London really was standing a thousand feet off the ground. The problem is, we would then go around to other cities, I imagine, and see under what circumstances they start to float a thousand feet off the ground. And then we start to make generalizations about our experiences of people, of cities floating a thousand feet off the ground. And at the end of that activity, we're gonna have a new scientific law of what causes cities to float a thousand feet off the ground. In other words, this is an entirely self-enclosed logical process. So although it seems that Hume is leaving the possibility open that miracles may in fact happen, as soon as we have some good ground for believing them, we also have some good ground for believing them not to be miraculous, but actually part of nature. A part of nature that we don't, that we don't have yet subsumed under a law, but a kind of unusual occurrence like London floating a thousand feet off the ground is bound to get scientific inquiry and wait and see. All we need is another Isaac Newton, then we'll be able to account for water into wine and things like that as well. So the point then is that no matter how you read Hume, if you take it to the logical um, nth degree, if you finish off the train of his thought, what he is doing is abolishing all things that you can't see. Um, what is it that uh, uh, Jesus says to Thomas, blessed is he, is he who has uh, believed without seeing, after Thomas puts his hand in Jesus' side? Well, it turns out that Hume is not blessed in that sense. He, he does not believe without seeing. What he has done 
is offered the other bookend to Swift, between Swift and Hume, or between the camps of philosophical partisans that they represent, we have the upper and lower millstones of the Enlightenment crushing the optimistic hopes of deism. What Hume and Swift have done have turned English deism, and deism as a whole is also waning at the same time for much the same reasons, they've turned deism into a kind of a wishbone, and Hume is tugging in one direction, and Swift is tugging in the other, and they split the wishbone of Enlightenment deism, and neither of them gets the majority part. It turns out that the attempt to reconcile science and religion, to reconcile revelation and reason, fails. And this, in some ways, is, an, is exemplary of the fact that the Enlightenment at this time, this, is written, uh, uh, this essay on, on miracles was written in, in 1748, that by the middle of the 18th century, the Enlightenment is beginning to run out of steam. You will see the same sort of caustic rejection of religious approaches to the world in contemporary books like Candide. The Enlightenment has started to lose its expectation that it will be able to solve all philosophical problems. The optimistic hope that we could reconcile reason and revelation is beginning to wane. So caustic, ironic books are beginning to gener be generated about this problem. And may I suggest, not just for the Enlightenment, but for the whole history of the West, irony always means that a cultural tendency is dying. A sincere speech, straightforward speech, is when we're on the upside of the curve, when, it, when an intellectual movement is taking off. After it's reached that midpoint and we're on the downside of the bell curve, that's when a culture becomes ironic about itself. If you think about Hume as being the apostle of skeptical irony, you can see that the English Enlightenment is now starting to eat its own tail and the unfinished business will have to be attended to by another intellectual movement. Same sort of ironic stance is, uh, is, is seen in Swift, we see it in Voltaire, we see it in all these, late, these Enlightenment thinkers that have found that the attempt by the Enlightenment to solve all outstanding philosophical problems is an example of hubris. Hume is mildly entertained by this hubris and wants to be even more hubristic. Swift is appalled by the secularizing tendencies of this hubris and he wishes to call our attention to it. Uh, Swift is writing a Jeremiah. Hume is writing a sort of philosophical joke in which he talks about natural religion and finds out that there isn't any such thing, in which he talks about miracles and said they're possible, except that no one's ever seen any that we can have any good grounds to believe in. What he gives you with one hand, he takes back with the other. Irony is always a sign that a culture is declining, or at least a cultural tendency is declining. Now, let me close with this idea. If we have reached an impasse here, and if irony is a sign that a cultural tendency, in this case, the cultural tendency called the Enlightenment, is reaching the end of its tether, what can we see that's positive or affirmative here? Well, I'd like to take the idea that the Enlightenment project of reconciling science and religion, the failure of that, as being fruitful and as being auspicious as well as being negative, by showing that reason and revelation are never completely in accord by showing that we can't quite do all the or satisfy our desire for logical rigor and our desire for religious certainty. If we can't have both at the same time, we will be forced into a set of choices in which we don't split the difference. We will be forced into the age of romanticism. When William Blake, for example, comes and writes about the dark satanic mills, when he paints his beautiful religious work and writes his religious poetry, he is reacting to the dry, desiccated deism 
of the Enlightenment. He says, no, I'm a romantic. I am going to tell you from the depths of my soul what my religious intuitions are like. He thinks he gets direct influence from the divinity, and because of that, he is going to offer us an entirely new approach to religion, which forsakes rationality, forsakes the age of science, forsakes scientific enlightenment rationality. In other words, by showing that you can't have your cake and eat it too, they are laying the foundations for Romanticism, which is the great reaction to the Enlightenment. And in particular, when we find out that we can't have both Swift and Hume, that we can't have both science and religion, we have to decide which way to go. Those that follow the path of Hume will, go, will move in the direction of Bentham and utilitarianism. Those that follow Swift and think that science is hubristic and want to bring us back to our biblical heritage, they are likely to go with Blake and also with someone like Burke, who is a romantic religious and political thinker that wants to criticize the tradition of Enlightenment deism. He thinks that it causes the terror of the French Revolution. When we are forced by the splitting of this wishbone to decide that we can't have our cake and eat it too, that we must go one way or the other, we are setting up the work of Soren Kierkegaard. Soren Kierkegaard, the greatest of the Romantic theologians, who is a great apostle of either or, which is his greatest philosophical work, Soren Kierkegaard's work will be a response to the fact that the Enlightenment program of reconciling science and religion has failed. If that is a failure, we must ask new questions and adopt new philosophical stances. So while Hume and Swift are marking the end of an age, and while they are destroying their common enemy, deism, they are in fact laying the foundation for a new and remarkably vital approach to religion that we will see when we get to Romanticism.